0: From The Professor Is In, welcome to the new version of our podcast. We are recording our podcast live on Wednesday afternoons at 2 p.m. Pacific. Make sure you're subscribed to The Professor Is In newsletter to be sure and get that link if you'd like to join us live. Or you can listen to the edited version in the podcast form the following Tuesday. If you'd like to support the live or the podcast, you can head over to bit.ly slash bit.ly slash o u r p o d and help support these ongoing programs thanks a lot and we look forward to hearing from you
1: hello everybody and welcome to the professor is in facebook live we are Delighted that you're here with us today. I am Dr. Karen Kelsky of The Professor is In.
0: And I am also delighted, and I am Kel Weinhold from The Professor is In. So we come to you every Wednesday live on Zoom and on Facebook. So if you're not a Facebook person, you can always join us on Zoom. And we then, by the brilliance of our editor, puts this all together in a coherent form, and it becomes the podcast the following week. So you can catch it in all those forms. And then, okay. Karen, you, you, are, you have the... You have the wheel on what we're talking about today.
1: Well, today we are talking about hashtag leaving academia because while we often talk about that, and if you are new to the podcast, because I see we have larger numbers than usual, and it's probably because a lot of folks have kind of either discovered the professors in or remembered the professors in because there were two articles this week, one in Nature and one in the Chronicle of Higher Ed, both about leaving academia. And um, they have had a really big impact, I think, on the discourse. And in fact, I believe that that the Nature article, Virginia Gowin, who is the author of that, I think she coined the hashtag leaving academia hashtag. So, Uh, that has provided a really great way for people to find each other and to find their stories on academia or on Twitter. And I will definitely be using that hashtag from now on.
0: All right. So as you mentioned, there are two articles that came out. There is an article that came out from Nature, and there's also an article that came out in the Chronicle of Higher Ed. Mm -hmm. Um, And who is the author of the Chronicle of Higher Ed article?
1: That was uh, Joshua Dolazal.
0: And he did a, just did a great job, and a, I, I have a little concern. We've already talked about it that this article that came out first by not by a publication that isn't as big as Chronicle kind of got buried. But make sure that you read the Chronicle article because he's a lovely writer.
1: Yeah, um, he is, and he himself is a uh, tenured professor who left. So, uh, and I think he is, uh, was originally from English, English PhD. So he has a real nuanced sense of the storytelling and of the uh, struggles of the humanities folks. Whereas uh, the nature piece is obviously really strong. It's it's exclusively focused on STEM people, which is very valuable. And I think the two of them together are fantastic, but I do wanna make sure that Josh's um, article gets Gets mentioned, I am quoted in both of them. And that was a weird experience to have two interviews on the same topic mm-hmm. about 10 days apart, and then to find myself quoted in, in both pieces. So, you know, the reason I was quoted, I think, I mean, I've been at, we've been active in the leaving academia sort of world for a number of years. But what happened was last February, February, 2021, I started the Private Professor is Out Facebook group. And that grew to, well, currently it's about 22,000 members. And the, I had no idea that it was going to grow that fast, none at all. And so I um, I was shocked. And then what I was even more shocked by was the how many of them are tenure track and tenured. Mm -hmm. And people are leaving. They're leaving Mm -hmm. their tenure-track jobs. Mm -hmm. They get the tenure-track job. They score. It's like winning the lottery. And then a year or two in, they leave. And then, of course, getting tenure is the ultimate lottery of the academic career. And people are leaving that, too. And not for retirement. Not for. I mean, Mm -hmm. folks are taking early retirement, too. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people actually quitting.
0: So we have a comment on Facebook that I think sort of speaks to what you're talking about is that we have been in this game for quite a while in terms of talking about creating a work environment for yourself that is workable, right? And that our goal has been from the beginning, certainly since I joined the, joined in terms of productivity, right? And so as soon as I joined the professor in, is in focusing on productivity, that my message persistently is you have to create an environment that is workable and supportive to you. Mm -hmm. and that some people can do that in the Academy and some places it is just not possible. Mm -hmm. And it became more, it became more and more like possible in the minds of people as time has gone on. But, but we've, we've sort of, and I'm not saying this to like, we were here first. What I want to say is that like, this is not a new conversation. I understand that this, both of these articles are really a part of the great resignation conversation that's going on nationally. But I think that, but we have to keep looking at what are the characteristics of the job that made people decide it was time to leave mm-hmm. and so what do you think is the has been the the tipping point for people because if we've been talking about it for a decade and suddenly all this is happening what do you think are the what do you think are the tipping points for that said to people okay now now i mean it mm-hmm. now enough already
1: hmm yeah, it's strange. It's a strange experience to have been working on this for so long and be so aware of it. And then suddenly for it to burst on, finally break through, break through the chatter, break through the denial. And actually, and, and people take it seriously. It's the, the reality that we knew for all right. these years. Suddenly it's becoming publicly you know, uh, visible. But I think, I mean, it was COVID. I mean, I yeah. I mean there were lots of things that preceded covid there was the defunding there was the stagnant wages there was the increasing hostility right wing attacks there was the um, walmart model of of higher education and the bureaucratized uh, administrative state you know where administrators increased 300% while tenure track faculty decreased uh, and tenured faculty so you know, increasing workload, a sense of being exploited without any kind of uh, appreciation, or I don't know if appreciation is the right word, but recognition maybe for your mm-hmm, labor, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, and then ever escalating standards. You know, it's the escalation of standards to get a job, the escalation of standards to get tenure. You know, uh, you know, you needed a couple of articles back in in my day in the 90s, and now you need a whole bunch of articles just to be competitive to get the tenure track job, let alone to get tenure. So I guess I'm completely contradicting what I just said. All of those things preceded COVID, but I don't think they were leading to a huge wave of resignations. And then COVID came and the universities were literally putting people in harm's way, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. physical harm. And I think that's- so I think. Point.
0: And, you know, uh, you know, me, I've been I've been banging the drum of, of the academy is not separate from capitalism for a very long time. People who work with me on a regular basis tease me like now, please insert capitalism rant, please insert Land degeneracy rant. So, you know, please insert racism rant. And so we knew, we've talked about that, that the, the economics of the academy are the economics of the academy, capitalism exists, and, and that we have talked about how faculty have sort of kept themselves separate from that idea, that they were part of a larger purpose, they're part of something separate from that model, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I saw happen with COVID was COVID hits in that summer Right? So it hits in the spring. A bunch of classes are canceled. They went whatever, and then you see a whole bunch of people devote for no additional pay a tremendous amount of time creating courses so the students could continue to be taught. So I'm saying that that way because I think faculty were motivated by that. I want the students to be able to keep having their collegiate experience, which which is a noble act. And a, and a vocational act, right? right? And so everybody kind of kept their blinders on about that that whole time, and then got to fall when it looked like it might be, that would be the time that everybody had their shit together and we were gonna come out of this or we were gonna do it a different way. And suddenly they found out, oh, you're gonna go back in the classroom and then you're gonna have me do hybrid and you're gonna have me do this, and you're gonna have me do that. And you're not going to give any recognition of all the time I spent over the summer doing all this. So when I wasn't even being paid, because most people Mm. are paid for nine months. And I feel like there was just this click for so many people Mm -hmm. of, wait a minute, Mm -hmm. I'm working for free. My job doesn't care about me, right? Like finally your job won't love you back kind of sunk in and people were like, this is not a fun thing. Mm -hmm. This is, and I'm not saying every job has to be fun all the time, but this is a, this is a. This is a miserable thing.
1: It's actually right? detrimental to my to our physical health, our mental health. Right. Actually detrimental. I mean, you and I have been talking about how that was the case for, like you said, a really long time. But I think that the scales finally fell from people's eyes. And it was like, I am really being actively harmed here. Right. And, you know, the thing that has been interesting... And the only way to fully get this is to really be on the private, in the private group and to watch the posts, to really read them because they're counterintuitive. They are. They're counterintuitive. They go against everything that academics have ever believed about our workplace, certainly ones that I still was holding on to, even from where I sit, you know, and being so critical of the academy and having left 11, 12 years ago which is that people are reporting much, much greater satisfaction in corporate environments. Right. What the heck is that?
0: Yeah. Like, right. How? Well, they've been, because <laughs> they've been working in a corporate environment for mm-hmm. the last decade or however long it is. Mm-hmm. And they're, they don't get to go home and mm-hmm. and just be done. But, right. but so I just want to say, and Karen and I have this thing, versions of this, whenever we talk about this subject, I think that it could come off like, sounding like i'm saying oh you guys finally woke up and quit which is not my message at all uh, my message has never been wake up and quit my message has always been wake up and set a boundary right sure. and i and that's that's really what my message continues to be wake up and set a boundary say no start start protecting your own physical and mental health mm-hmm. say no if there had been a collective if people if academics saw themselves as part of labor and saw themselves as needing to be unionized an active, a, a full on active, you, you know, nationwide walkout, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, like set up break and boundary, mm-hmm. but I'll just also just, I guess th- what I'm leading to that on that is that this just makes me sad. Like mm-hmm. I'm sad about the, the collapse of the academy. Mm-hmm. I'm sad about the American K through 12 system that we're losing thousands of brilliant teachers and kids are suffering. And I'm glad that those teachers are saying, I'm not going to risk my life for this. Mm -hmm. And I'm sad.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And I, and somebody in the comments said two things. One, somebody said, I think also teaching became painful online when done virtually. And also students and professors were emotionally drained. So it was just so hard and emotionally difficult and physically difficult. And then this comment, reading horror stories on the spreadsheet and Side note, that's a spreadsheet that you created. Do you wanna say that for a quick second before I read the rest of it?
1: Go ahead and finish it and then I'll talk about the spreadsheet.
0: The toxicities are broadly similar similar across countries despite massive operational differences, i.e. US and UK academics have similar experiences despite completely different tenure system. Mm -hmm. Is the problem, quote, bigger than any single employment condition? Mm -hmm. And I think it is. And I think that's sort of what we're trying to tease out. But talk about the spreadsheet for a second.
1: Yeah. So I was, I got kind of tired of the reality that I was reading all these stories, that I felt like I was in possession of this incredibly valuable information, and that it was, there was no way to get it out because the point of the Facebook group, the professor is out, is that it is private and it is confidential. And um, we run it really, uh, we run a tight ship. I have an administrative team. And you're not allowed to share anything from it. You are allowed to post anonymously if you want to. And a lot of people do. And it's kind of a cone of silence. And so I decided to create this crowdsource Google spreadsheet where people could share their stories anonymously and they would have an option of how much potentially identifiable detail they wanted to include. And so basically the outcome is that as of this morning, there were 400 entries and I put it out on Twitter today, so I think we're probably going to be coming up on 500 really soon, but basically, yeah, and, and because I'm an anthropologist, I don't want numbers. I that, um, That's not my goal, not looking for statistical analysis at all. What I want are stories, so I make these open-ended long paragraph answers, that, and so, and being academics, people write long paragraphs and, and, you know, short stories about their experience leaving academia. The stories are just tragic. I mean, they're really hard to read. They're just, they're so painful. And it is, it is absolutely tragic because if we don't have a pipeline of faculty coming in, and I know pipeline is a really fraught word because it's used in the STEM fields uh, a lot of like a really particular way. But if we don't have a pipeline of new, academics coming in and sustaining scholarship and teaching, similarly to if we don't have a pipeline of young teachers, K through 12 teachers coming in and maintaining standards in the classroom, what are we, we going to do? What's going to happen? Right. Seriously.
0: Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, there are all sorts of cynical roads I can go down about like what's going to happen to the academy and and in a way, the people who are waving their arms a decade ago about the corporatization of the academy, the turn toward being a vocational schools rather than places of of sort of learning all of those things. Um, I think we're seeing the consequences of that now. And I think we're going to see it over time. And I think, you know, one of the comments is that about when I was saying, you know, saying no or just setting boundaries, somebody said, say no and you don't get tenure. It has to be collective. And it absolutely does have to be collective. I think that this idea, and there's another comment that follows up right on it, is talking about reading the spreadsheet, saying, thank you for making the spreadsheet, discovering it this afternoon was the first time in three years I felt like other academics know what I'm experiencing. And this is the line I think is critical for everybody to think about. Senior leaders work hard to ensure that we don't share stories and identify patterns in their behavior, right? So I don't I'm not I don't actually want to lay that on senior leaders as an, as individuals. I want to look I want to look at the structure. I wish there was a a sociologist who does structures of organizations. If there is on the call, I'd love to get the structural analysis. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's something very deeply woven into the capitalism model of, of, of workers and management and everything else that keeps that attempts to keep workers from. Identifying with and co- collecting with each other,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? So that's why um,
1: Howard Schultz, his name is the yeah. former CEO of Starbucks, is so is, is 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 just you know freaking out about the unionization. It's uh, you know wave of Starbucks, but yeah, like you know, but but honestly though, why do you think that academics? Why do you think academics don't see it? Because I
0: think that you're trained from the minute you walk in, from the minute you step into graduate school, you are trained to narrow your focus down to your thing. The self-selecting group of people in the academy do not come in to build community. They don't come in, in, in the battle days, absolutely didn't come in to build community. They weren't looking to think of themselves as, as workers. They wanted to be life of the mind, go over here and focus on my thing, mm-hmm. right here, my thing. And by the time you do that all the way through graduate school, and then to for survival and tenure, you do it all the way. You're, how are you going to look up, sit, like wake up and look at structure? <laughs> I feel like the reason people are looking at structure is a little bit like, you know, you get a health diagnosis that's really frightening. Yeah. Or you get a, or you, someone very close to you dies unexpectedly Mm -hmm. and you do this, like, what am I doing with my life? Yeah, I mean, we've all, well, many of us have had that moment where you just stop and reconsider. What am I doing? Mm -hmm. Is this really what I want to do if my days are numbered? So I think with COVID we had that right Mm -hmm. with Trump in the U S and COVID and climate change and everything i think there's the great resignation is really about like how do i want to spend my days Mm -hmm. so i don't think people saw it because it wasn't an wasn't visited on the individual enough to pull them out of their focus on their tiny topic
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and then you get you can't do your research your teaching's all fakakha you're you're you think the university is going to take care of you and then you just realize no they're just going to extract more labor out of me mm-hmm. without caring about me and you suddenly look up and go damn did i just get a you know a like a cancer diagnosis that's mm-hmm. not deadly but could kill me mm-hmm. did i just did my somebody right here next to me die mm-hmm. fuck this shit mm-hmm. So I don't think they saw it because of that individual stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think they're seeing it because individually it's affecting them.
1: Yeah.
0: I don't think it's some grand awakening.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I wish I was just too cynical about,
1: mm-hmm.
0: about the sort of hyper individualism of the academy.
1: Yeah. It's like the. Yeah, for sure. I think the other thing that may be playing a role in this that I didn't mention, but is the, are the attacks on tenure all over there's so many different states now that ex- have explicitly attacked tenure yeah. the institution of tenure georgia was one of the first uh, indianas uh, louisiana a bunch of the southern states but not just out uh, some of the midwestern as well and well, wisconsin it, led the way it was was it oh of course it was yes it was it was wisconsin so you know they're like um you know you look out ahead to because a lot uh, certainly like I know from when I was an assistant professor that there was sort of a shared understanding that if you just sort of—it wasn't really paid your dues exactly—but you you would put your head down, you would really struggle, it'd be really stressful, you would get tenure, and then things would ease up. Now, I don't think that was ever true, or at least it hasn't been true for a long time because there's a ton, there's a giant workload that falls onto um, associate professors. So you know, I don't think it was ever true, especially women, but. Um, when you look out ahead and you don't even see the prospect of tenure, then what? Right. Or, or you
0: did all that stuff and then you realize the legisl- legislature may vote away your security. And you know, I had a dean tell me years ago that you know faculty are are by nature conflict averse. That they didn't come in to be in conflict; they came in to do their thing and get a job that didn't go away.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> right. They just want to like just leave me out of this and have me do this thing which is why faculty meetings are such a nightmare cuz everybody's still like doing their thing mm-hmm. and but they all care about their thing but i think that that idea of of i'm not i came in this to just get a job and do my thing i just you know what people not my thing this thing being in control of every people wanting me to be there and do this and do that not my thing i just want i love my thing and i want to do my thing i just want to look at my thing yeah. And if, it, if you wake up one day and go, fuck, I can't do my
1: thing. Right.
0: And it might, they might take my thing away from me. And I've been doing my thing like 24-7 for eight years and maybe a nine to five. You mean I get off at five and I just get to go home and like, go home?
1: Yeah. Right.
0: I, I like that thing better than my thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. And then and then there's the, there's the reality that a lot of us on the professor's out page, we, we they spend a lot of time talking about what, what is better since we left. And you know the thing that is, the main thing I think about that's better for me is that I can read for fun. And right. I never stopped talking about that. I have mentioned it on the podcast before, but I will not stop saying it because it's huge. Because when I was a child, my formative years, the reason Karen is the way Karen is-, is <laughs> There are many reasons,
0: by the way. <laughs> well,
1: but was because I was a bookworm. And books yeah. were my salvation. Books were my safe place. So I was I was in control. Uh, the chaos was I could you know I could get relief, uh, and I was good at it. Uh, you know I loved them. They were everything. And for and I think a lot of other humanities people in particular that this is going to be the same story for you. And it's your it's your lifeline and maybe not just humanities, but whatever. Anyway, um, and so you then you, you pursue it and you do your undergrad and then they, you're flattered by your professor who says, oh, you know, you're so good at this, you should get a PhD and you're flattered and you go to do it. And pretty soon by the end of the first year, maybe by the end of the first semester, you are not reading a, a, for fun again, you've, you've stopped and it won't but, come back.
0: Right, until you, I mean, not in the, not, well, I'm just gonna say, because you know, this is the world I live in. Mm-hmm. It comes back when you set a boundary and do it.
1: No, you're right. It does And In fact, I know like a couple of tenured professors who read for fun. So, you know.
0: Yeah. And they yeah. do that because they, they, because they have boundaries. Mm-hmm. Like they. So what I think disappears in starting in graduate school is what you used to do for fun. Not just that you stopped reading for fun, that you forgot that you used to do things just for fun. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I do with folks that I'm working with either individually in a group or in a group is that I have them write down. I always ask them the question, what did you love when you were 10? So if anybody wants to answer that question on, the, on Zoom or, or on Facebook, what, what, what's the first thing that popped into your mind when I said, what did you love to do at 10? What's remarkably me is the number of people who say roller skate, <laughs> right? Climb trees, play outside, roller skate. Mm -hmm. biking right playing with your dogs play play if i told most academics here's here's my coaching advice for you i want you to pick one half an hour every day and go play Mm -hmm. it would be just like "Ah, what what is that Mm -hmm. i love to see the coloring right Mm -hmm. People swimming, reading, coloring, writing books, right? writing those delightful little kid books with the staples and all the pictures and the the narrative arc that was really suspect. (laughs) It was really so awesome. I have several of those from my nieces and nephews that I just adore that Mm -hmm. not clear what story they're telling, but they're just so fantastic. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing that gets lost. And that's the thing I wonder, I do believe that the environment is toxic. I do believe that the environment is deeply problematic and causes harm. I wonder often what you can change within your day that it causes you less harm. Mm-hmm. Cause I do think that there are bad, bad departments. You just got to get the fuck out. Mm-hmm. But, but I think sometimes that we get so invested outside of our lane and then not in the things that we really do want to change, but sort of all that, that we don't, set some time aside for our play.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, that's my
0: encouragement, folks. If you're still in the academy or you're out of the academy or you're anywhere in between, make a list of what you did when you were 10 and start doing it again mm -hmm. a little bit every day. Somebody said, I've been coloring an hour before bed every day. I just love that.
1: That's really cool. I mean, on the podcast, we have talked before about the importance of this kind of creativity in, in my life was the catalyst for me being able to leave academia. And it all started because of crafting. And it, I didn't know that what where the crafting was going to lead. I didn't do it with that agenda. I did it because it was play that delighted me and used a different part of my brain and helped me out of a very traumatic um, experience or helped me cope with a really traumatic experience. And, and then little by little it did, it opened up new avenues and new ways of thinking that then led to eventually, through a bunch of twists and turns to starting the professor is in, and, and so we you know you, we just cannot overstate the importance of play, and and play can be you know dancing. I mean, dance is critical, is something critical that I do. That is, um, even though it's choreographed, it's very free. And yoga could be that way, or art, or um, or sports, or all kinds of things. But what you have to be really careful of, though, is how Americans, in particular. Um, turn everything into a competitive outcome-oriented enterprise
0: well let me just say as a productivity coach how quickly capitalism gets people to say i'll play so i'm more relaxed so i write more that's not the point people it's not play so you have more the, like you have more bandwidth to work it's play because you deserve it rest because you deserve it like all that sort of stuff so mm-hmm.
1: but also um, to not be the best yoga person To not even be, frankly, a very good yoga person, you know. Maybe you're pretty bad at it. Whatever, who cares? Just go and do it. It's fun. It's fun to stretch your body, you know. Whatever. They could be, you know, a bad runner, a bad whatever. It doesn't matter. Separating from those these really intense value judgments that permeate academia and permeate capitalism and permeate American society that no, you, know, you can't just play, you have to then join a club and then you have to like compete and then you have to get a prize and then you have to move up in this rankings. And yeah, like, no, we're not talking about that.
0: But I will, let me read a comment from somebody that, that is a feel good, right? A, a positive story about the Academy.
1: Hmm. So
0: the person says, I've only engaged with Kel's program a little bit, but during the pandemic, I was in a toxic department and your stuff was very sustaining and helped me write. Which, by the way, if you don't know what that is, that's Unstuck, The Art of Productivity. It's a uh, our, what did you call it today in the email?
1: A marquee. Our, our, marquee, our marquee productivity trend. program.
0: I got out to a uni in Denmark that treats me like a queen. Good oh. news story, exclamation point. Wow. Thank you. And I have to go to sleep because it's 1129 in Scandinavia. Cheers for the play suggestion. Going to try this tomorrow. So important. <laughs> Bye and thanks. Nice. So I think it's, just so important that we remember I'm gonna, you know, it's possible to do it different ways.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So go read those two articles. Don't feel alone if it all sucks. It's really hard right now. Mm -hmm. Search for a little play. Mm -hmm. And know that we, if you stay or, oh, I saw, I'm watching This Is Us way, way, way late. And there was a line in one of the relationships, the relationship between Kevin and Zoe, I think their character's name. So Kevin being the main white male character, the living white male character, and Zoe being his partner. He's relapsed drinking and Zoe's cousin says, I won't judge you if you leave. And then the cousin says, Zoe says, will you judge me if I stay? And she said absolutely not and so that's the message i want you all to understand is that we're not going to judge you if you stay and we're not going to judge you if you leave mm-hmm. we're not going to judge you at all mm-hmm. but but you stay or you go but just make sure you stay or you go working to- toward being whole
1: mm-hmm.
0: what do you have to add karen oh no,
1: just that and the, and the yet The idea that that human wholeness would be something that a person that is that A exists and B is accessible and C is something that an academic should prioritize. I mean, if I cast my mind back to, uh, you know, my mode of thinking when I was still in academia, you know, I have a feeling people are going to struggle with this they're going to struggle with the idea there some of them are going to be real skeptical and say pshaw, that's just humanist bullshit and <laughs> some people are going to say you know i don't even know what that would look like and uh you know so, i mean but but yeah it's been a long journey for me my journey out, out of academia 12 years now and i you know it's still kind of like i have this little niggling academic skepticism it's always ruining everything, trying to ruin everything for me and say, well, wholeness Peshaw, what is that? But yeah, no, let's really say you deserve to be whole. You deserve to be at peace. You deserve to be respected and respect yourself. Right.
0: So um, just to wrap up, we have a couple of requests in the Facebook page. So here's a great comment on Facebook because I think it's really valuable. Mm-hmm. I think I can't just quite deal with the fact that all of us in academia to get to any kind of faculty position, whether adjunct or tenure track or tenured or postdoc or whatever, have done so much, jumped through so many hoops, done over and over and over again what we've been asked to do, gone beyond it all, published endlessly, endlessly helped students for far beyond what the system, quote, expected, mm-hmm. worked for every hour, worked every hour we have, exhausted ourselves over and over again, made ourselves ill, probably given up everything that interests us, in many cases forced families and loved ones to suffer or take second place, but for Mm -hmm. what? Mm
1: -hmm. To
0: deliver more and more and more while being treated as expendable, replaceable, meaningless, fungible components in a system that doesn't care about us without wanting to seem too arrogant about it all. Academics are supposed to be pretty intelligent why the hell do we let ourselves be treated so badly all the time and right there folks is the mic drop
1: (laughs) yeah wow that's brilliant
0: thank you for that we'll we will wrap we will end with that bye
1: bye everyone